0: To continue our journey in the story this morning, we'll be in the book of 2 Kings. Last week we were in 1 Kings, and today we will continue this journey that we are on. Several years ago, there was a television program preceding the 1988 Winter Olympics that featured blind skiers being trained for the slalom skiing event. Impossible as that sounds. They were paired with sighted skiers. The blind skiers were taught on the flats how to make right and left turns, and when that was mastered, they were taken to the slalom slope, where their sighted partners skied beside them, shouting left and right. As they obeyed the commands, they were able to negotiate the course and cross the finish line, depending solely on the sighted skier's word. It was either complete trust or catastrophe. This is what the Christian life is like. We really have no idea what's coming down the pike. We have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. And God asks us to completely trust him. When he says right, we make a sharp right. When he says left, we make a sharp left. He says stop, we stop where we are. That's the challenge that we have before us. That's what it means to be completely committed and devoted to God. You can only imagine these blind skiers on the slopes if they have no idea where they're going or, or where, where the slalom marks are. And, I mean, it would just be horrendous, a catastrophe if they didn't listen uh, directly. And you notice also that before they took them on the slopes, they, they first trained them in, in how to maneuver at all with the skis, H- how to do a left, how to do a right, because before you can do that going down the slopes, you need to know how to do a left and how to do a right. And that's also how God trains us. It's baby steps. He doesn't take a new believer and, and throw him into the pulpit, so to speak. He, he doesn't take a, a new believer and and put him into the marathon. Um, we, we First, we learn to maybe crawl and then walk and, and then run before we sprint and do a marathon. And so that is the Christian life. But it is a life that is based completely on trusting God, which means we've got to be in touch with God. Which means we've got to have a relationship with God. Which means we've got to be in the word of God. And God has graciously given us his word. That, that's what's so unique and so great about Christianity and Judaism upon which Christianity sits. That God has revealed himself. That we don't have to be searching for him. Well, in the story, one of the things that we've learned is that the Bible is like a mural. We have this book that's 66 books, and there's this thread that weaves all the way through it. And there's this storyline that God is doing. And then when you come into the picture the day you were born, you dropped into God's storyline, and your story and God's story intersect. You don't have a choice about it. Once you were born, you were in. You're on the stage. You're one of the actors. The only choice you have is whether you're going to be a protagonist or an antagonist. Are you going to be part of what God's trying to do or are you going to oppose what God is trying to do? You won't stop him. You'll just get crushed in the process probably. But your choice is that simple. You don't be with God or, or against him. And this morning, so my question to you is who is your ally? Who is your ally from 2 Kings chapter 17-19? to 19. Now last week we were 1 Kings 17-19 to 19, and we were introduced to a man named Elijah. We talked about how God had sent his messenger, Elijah, with a message for King Ahab and, and the wicked queen Jezebel and their pagan Baal worship that they had interjected into the, the whole culture. And God's messenger came to reveal to them that they were in sin and they needed to turn back. And, of course, you know, they didn't listen, despite God's huge show of power. Prophets of Baal were destroyed, but then Jezebel, she wasn't phased. She said, I'll kill you tomorrow. Now, God did protect, protect Elijah, and he wasn't killed. And his successor, Elijah, took up uh, the mantle after that. And there's many different prophets. In fact, Elijah and Elisha are, are a couple of prophets that are well-known, but they're not writing prophets. And this morning we need to understand the difference between the two. So the the writing prophets are the prophets that wrote. They're the ones that when you go to the book of the prophets in the Bible, you read them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, etc. They're the writing prophets. They wrote, and and we can read what they wrote. Elijah and Elisha, they they weren't writing prophets. Uh, They were prophets that did works. As did other prophets in the Bible. Some of the prophets in the Bible aren't even, aren't even named. They just say a man of God said this or, or did this. Or a prophet did this or that. And so there's a distinction be- between these two. So the storyline for 2 Kings 17 to 19 is, is that after Ahab and Jezebel up in the northern kingdom. okay, Remember it's been split. I'll show you the map in a little bit. Um, they continue in a state of decline. None of the 20 kings followed after God or had hearts that loved God completely like David. They were not devoted to God. Rather, they followed the ways of Jeroboam, who had made and worshipped idols. As idols ultimately cannot save because they are man made, Israel was ultimately left without any real ally. Who are they going to trust in? Who are they going to rely on when things get tough? These man made objects of wood and stone and and coated in gold and silver, they aren't going to do anything for them. They have to carry those things around. How are they going to save them? What they need is someone that can carry them around. But they'd rejected God. So in a violent and a crazy world where nation after nation wants to rule the world and where Israel is caught smack dab in the middle of it, they repeatedly pick the wrong ally, an ally that can't carry them anywhere, an ally that can't speak for them, an ally that can't save them, an ally that has no power. They're inept. In this map up on the screen... This is a map of the ancient Near East. I, I need to help us uh, reconfigure our minds a minute. I know that we're not very good in the, the West, Americans, you know, with geography, but you really can't understand the Bible without geography. Um, it's very important to the land. Now, this is a, uh, a, a picture of the East, all right? Now, a little bit uh, zoomed out far back. We're going to zoom up in a minute, and, you know, our color's not super good here, but you can see here on the screen, there's a there's a band that's actually purple, okay, that, that runs right through here. It this is a mountain range that runs all through here, Europe and Asia, okay, and even further west, all right? Uh, that mountain range is a natural border. that we zoom in a little bit further, okay, so we're honing in a little bit more, this is the Mediterranean Sea right here, and this is the area that we're going to end up focusing, focusing in on, here's the Red Sea right here, <coughs> so um, Egypt is, is over in this area over here, on um, the next slide, we're going to zoom in a little bit more, all right, now we're getting a little bit closer in here, so I get the first picture so that you can see where we are kind of in the world. That's where Israel is. So now you can see um, the Fertile Crescent, which you learn about in in middle school and high school, is over here. The Persian Gulf, which we've been in multiple wars with, is over here. So that means Iraq and Iran are over here, all right? Um, You've got the Euphrates River right here, the Tigris River right here, and then um, Israel is here. So I think – is there one more that we zoom in? I don't remember. Yes. so here we go. border. So if you see this, and we're zoomed in, you see this purple section, all right? And you'll see that the fertile crescent is right below it. So it's called the fertile crescent because it's a fertile area. They can, they can grow stuff there. The mountains, kind of hard to grow a lot of stuff, all right? Now, over here, all right, is uh, Egypt, all right? And what you need to understand, to understand what's going on in the book of Kings, and understand what's going on in the history of Israel is that Israel is smack dab in the middle of this situation. They're literally in the middle of it. All right. Not only are they in the middle of it, but the main highways, they had highways back then, they just didn't have cars, all right? <coughs> but the main highways ran right through here. So if you want to trade or you want to travel between Egypt and Mesopotamia, you have to go was so wealthy, he controlled all the toll booths in the whole region. You know what I'm saying? Everyone had to go through there. this and God has given them this land on purpose and God has told them that they need to trust him for this but it's hard when you have armies marching towards you and when you have armies surrounding your city and that is the challenge they face the next map shows the divided kingdom so Back to the time period that we are in, okay? God has already given them the land. They've already had three different kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. The kingdom has been split because of Solomon's idolatry and all of his foreign wives that led him astray. And now as the kingdom is split, the top green area is Israel, and the the bottom is Judah. Today we're going to focus the first part of our message on the top, and then when the top gets destroyed, we'll move to the south. And next week, I think... um, Zoran's going to be teaching next week. I'll actually be out of town. And um, I think what he'll probably pick up on is the south and what happens to them. All right? And so the historical background for this is that Israel has been divided for over 200 years. They have 20 kings in the north. All right? Anybody remember how many are good? Yes. How many? Um, zero, Zero. Zero. That's right. No good kings. Okay? They're all bad. All right? Bad guys. The prophets have been on the scene. And uh, Elijah, Elijah, but then near the end of this time period, the writing prophets show up Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, um, Micah. So these prophets, now let me, I just want to make a couple comments about the prophets because I know that these are confusing to you. All right, when you look at the the book of the prophets, you've got. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, okay? There's the first five. Lamentations isn't really a prophet. He is um, – or that's a writing by Jeremiah. So it's really just the four, four prophets. They're called major prophets because they wrote a lot. Their books are big, like Isaiah 66 chapters, all right? They're big books. Um, then you have the minor prophets, and they're called minor – why do you think? Because they're small books. That's all right, Okay? Now when you look at the minor prophets, there's 12, okay? So there's five books in the major and and then 12. 12 and 5 is 17, right? So there's these 12. And and the first six actually alternate, for the most part, between the north and the south. So it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, uh, Jonah, Micah. And so it's north-south, north-south, north-south. All right? That's how it's actually orchestrated. So when you um, can remember that, you'll, you'll kind of get an idea of, of who they're addressing. Now, there's a little bit of an exception to that, in a sense, with uh, Jonah. Uh, it kind of falls on the north. But what you got to understand about Jonah is that Jonah is a, is a double whammy. Uh, Jonah was uh, written to, uh, to um, record what, what Jonah had said to the Assyrians. All right? And God sent Jonah, and this is all relevant for today because we're going to talk about the Assyrians – God had sent Jonah to the Assyrians to tell them to repent. And the Assyrians actually did repent. And so why is this recorded? And what does this have to do with Israel? Well, Israel should have learned from this. Even the pagans repented when God revealed himself. Uh, but Israel doesn't. And so there is an, an aspect where it's to the north and, and to the Assyrians there. So they're they're in quasi-chronological order. Alright? They're mostly chronological, but there's a few that aren't. Alright? So that's just to, to help you a, a little bit on that. Um, with the major prophets, it's also kind of easy if you can remember Isaiah. He's is the first one for the north. Jeremiah to the south because the north is gone by that point. All right, and then Ezekiel and Daniel are the other two. They're during the exile, so that's an order too. Isaiah is to the north. When the north gets taken away, you got Jeremiah. He's to the south. When the south gets taken away, you got Ezekiel and Daniel. That's in the exile. They're off in Babylon. All right. So those are in chronological order also, all right? So the kingdom's divided. Look at this map here. Here's the 20 uh, kings, the 40 all total, but 20 kings in the north, all evil, all right? In the south, you've got uh, eight that are good, uh, 12 that are bad. So the south does have a couple of good ones. We're going to talk about one of them, Hezekiah, this morning. So the prophets have been on the scene, all right? Regular prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and then these writing prophets have come on the scene. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, okay? Isaiah is on the scene for us today. In the the divided kingdom now, what you got to realize is where the threat's coming from. Second slide, honey. The Assyrian expansion, all right? Assyria is the dominant world empire. I know there's a lot of history that we're going through today, but you can't understand what's going on in the Bible if you don't understand this historical aspect. All right? So the Assyrian expansion is in place. All right, And we're not going to go into everything related to it. You know, Take a Bible class for that. Um, but Assyria is the dominant power on the scene. And you can see them up here. Remember the map I showed you in the beginning. So you've got the fertile crescent, okay, which, which runs through here. All right? And then here's Assyria. So as Assyria, the Nazis of their day, they were very cruel, okay? They perfected torture. They could skin you alive without killing you, all right? They were good at this stuff. They're the ones that I've told you before. They'd, they'd cut your stomach open. they put a cat inside. they sew you back up, and they just watch the fun, all right? They were, they were horrible, horrible in their brutality. And these are the people that God had sent Jonah to because he wanted to save even them, all right? so you can see that the, the love of God is very far-reaching. Um, the Israelites, however, they, they had no love for the Assyrians. Um, they had hatred towards them. And so part of the problem that begins to develop is the Israelites become like the pagans. We talked a little bit about this last week and the week before, that Solomon had become like the Egyptians. He was oppressing his own people. He was getting his horses and chariots from Egypt, which he was forbidden to do. Um, He was getting women from Egypt. All of these things from Egypt, which Egypt becomes the symbol of oppression, of world powers. And so the story continues, and Israel doesn't learn from their past, and they continue to oppress and become more and more like their neighbors. Um, One of their neighbors was Moab down in the uh, southeast. Moab was known for hating um, Israel and Judah, and when they came out of Egypt, they did not help them, but instead uh, tried to fight them. And so God, through the book of Obadiah, the the prophet Obadiah, he condemns and judges uh, the Edomites. Now, the Edomites lived up in the hill country in in this mountain fortress. It was impregnable. It was literally a city built into the rocks. And so they thought it was impregnable. Um, but God said otherwise because of their uh, treatment of his people, he was going to destroy them. And historically, he did. And so Israel is in the, in the middle of this whole situation and the Assyrians are on the scene. And they're afraid. What, what do we do? But see, at this point, it's a little bit too late for them because God has already sent prophet after prophet. And so as we look at Israel, what we see in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6, as it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria, and he settled them in Halah, and by the Habor, Gozan's river, and in the cities of the Medes. Now the Medes is eventually going to be the Medes and the Persians so that tells you that the Assyrians are also controlling the Medes area at this time alright so the Assyrians have taken them now we skipped all the interaction of how it happened okay we just don't have time for all that this morning but the point is that the prophets including Elijah that we talked about last week including taking out the prophets of Baal including God's showdown and the fire from heaven was not enough to turn the people back to him wasn't enough. They saw it. Seeing didn't, didn't make believing. And so their time has run out, and so God has judged them, and they're deported. And so you can see here on the screen, if you can see the arrows, that they are deported both from Israel, which is on the left side towards the bottom, okay? Assyria up on the right, and you have two sets of arrows going back and forth. That's because the Assyrian policy was. We take the people we conquered, Israel, and we deport them out over to the Assyrian other lands. And we take people that we've conquered over here and in Assyria and in Persia and et cetera, and we send them into Israel. And so we mix them all up. And what that does is it makes people from all different groups, ethnicities, and nationalities all in the same place, and it removes any nationality or national identity. And without nationality and national identity, you don't have a unified people who are going to rebel against you. So this is how they kept their rebellions down. So they're deported. In 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 7, the very next verse, it says, This disaster happened because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they had worshipped other gods. Now I want you to notice okay, what Israel's sins are. Israel's sins... Are verse 7 ingratitude? God had brought them out of Egypt and they were not thankful. This is the whole book of Numbers. People wandering around in the wilderness grumbling. They're not grateful, they're ungrateful. They have ingratitude. So, ingratitude in verse 7. Also, it is said in verse 7 that they were worshiping idols. So, idolatry. They have gone to worshiping golden cows. Okay, Jeroboam set them up as soon as he got there. Okay. Because he was afraid. He didn't want people going back down to the temple. And so you've got ingratitude in verse 7. You've got idolatry in verse 7. You've got inculturation in verse 8. What does that mean? That means syncretism. That means they are adopting the values, beliefs, and practices of the cultures around them. God had created Israel to be a nation that was separate and distinct and unique. Well, you're not separate, distinct, and unique if you're doing what everybody else is doing. That's the same problem you and I have today. God calls us to be separate, distinct, and unique, and we want to do what everybody else is doing. You can't have it both ways. And so who are the devoted? The devoted to to Christ, the devoted to Yahweh in the Old Testament, are the ones who are separate and distinct, not the ones that are doing what everybody else in the world is doing. That's what God calls us to do. Come out from among them and be a separate people. Come out from among them, but be still... ...living there so you can be a witness. In the Inter-Testament period, which is in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's these people who are called the Essenes, and they would go live up in the mountains. They they would get away from the village because they didn't want to be corrupted. The problem with that is you're no longer influencing people. The Pharisees, now I know the Pharisees get a really bad rap in the New Testament, and, and rightly so... Um, But the Pharisees actually started out as the group of people that were kind of the opposite to the Essenes. They wanted to be separate, distinct, and unique, but they were going to stay so that they could be separate, distinct, and unique amidst the people and be an influence on the people. Pharisees started out with the right idea. Pharisees got self-righteous over time, and that's why they get condemned by Jesus, because of their self-righteousness. And so the ingratitude, the idolatry, the inculturation, and lastly in verse 9, it says uh, the secret sins that they committed. And so they're doing these things in secret. Well, there's nothing secret from God. You can't keep a secret. One of the stories of Elijah that's so cool is I think it's in 2 Kings chapter 6, uh, verse 8 and following, is that there's the king of Aram or Syria and His plans keep being found out, and Israel keeps countering them. And they're like, well, who's the spy? And his people are like, there's no spy, king. It's that prophet Elijah. His God tells him every move you make, even what you do in your bedroom or the bathroom. He knows everything. There is no secrets. You can't hide from God. Jonah tried it, by the way. See where that got him. And so these are the things that we see, the ingratitude, the idolatry, the inculturation, and the in-secret acts that were not right before God, that he condemns and judges them. He waited over 200 years before he judged them. That means that for over 200 years, he gave them opportunities to repent. So people that say that God is harsh and, and unloving and, and all this type of thought, they, they don't take into account the long-suffering patience of God. That over 200 years, by the way, that's after the division. That's after 120 years of the three kings. That's also after the 300-plus years in the book of Judges. So you look at all this time that God is patiently waiting and waiting and waiting, and you realize that he is just and holy, so there has to be a judgment on sin, but he's also very, very patient and waiting all this time. And so this is Israel's sin that led them to, To The downfall. This is what led to the Assyrians coming in. One of the things that God does all through Scripture is he uses pagans to to punish or spank or judge or discipline his own people, which baffles their minds. Some of the prophets, they're like, God, how in the world can you possibly do this? These people are so wicked. And God's like, don't worry about it. They're going to get theirs also. Because what happens, as we'll see today, is then the people that God is using to punish become arrogant themselves. And don't realize and or forget or don't recognize who put them in that place. And then they give their results also. So it's this vicious cycle until you submit yourself and acknowledge God. <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier about Jonah, the very inter- interesting case of him, how he prophesies to Assyria and they repent. But they don't maintain it, which is why later on Nahum goes back and prophesies again and then Assyria is taken over. And, and they're conquered as well. This message, though, that Jonah had sent to the Assyrians, that should have been a catalyst for change in Israel. But, alas, Israel had become like the Egyptians in their worship and become like the Assyrians in their hatred toward one another. Like Jonah and Hosea, Israel ran from God. They failed to obey God's word, as Amos had indicated, and they hated their neighbors just like Edom did, if you read the book of Obadiah. They're on the wrong track and on a fast track, or or a slow track, I suppose, to judgment. As the Assyrian army rises like a consuming fire, Israel forgets that Yahweh is the real consuming fire, and Assyria is just a vassal in his hand. Rather than trust God and ally themselves with the one who brought them out of Egypt and freed them from their oppression, they choose to enslave themselves again and again via alliances, whether it's with Syria or Egypt or Babylon, whoever it is, that they think that they can stave off the Assyrians. None of them work. None of them. Because the judgment... of their continuous sin as we just discussed 2nd Kings 17 16-17 passage again they abandoned all the commands of the Lord their God they made cast images for themselves two calves and an asherah pole they worshipped the whole heavenly host and they served Baal they're involved in all sorts of pagan worship what was evil in the Lord divination omens. This is still going on today. Drive around the city. Witchcraft, tarot cards, palm reading, fortune-seeking tellers, all this stuff. This is what they're doing instead of relying on the revelation of God. You don't need a horoscope. You need the word of God. In 2 Kings 17 verse 18, it says, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them from his presence. That is a phrase you don't want mentioned in the same sentence with your name. To be removed from the presence of God. When God judges a nation or a group of people and he removes himself or his presence, they no longer have any power. Samson woke up and he went out as before to throw off the ropes and to fight the Philistines, but he knew not that the Spirit had left him and instead of throwing off the ropes and beating up the Philistines they beat him up and gouged out his eyes and he ended up in a prison blind because of his sin so the Assyrians are on the scene the Assyrians come in and they take over and when they take over they divide up the group and this is called the, the Assyrian provinces or the city states that they set up for them and you can basically see that it's no longer the northern kingdom up on top, but all the light-colored area is all owned and run by Assyria. And the only thing left is the south. And so, now comes God's messenger, Isaiah, in the south. So we're transitioning. The north is no more. It's gone. It doesn't exist. will never exist again. It's gone. Goodbye. And we look now at the south. And we look at a prophet Isaiah and the king Hezekiah. And so in Second Kings 17, we continue, 18 and 19 again. 18 says, Therefore the Lord was angry with Israel, and he removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained. Then in verses uh, 2 through 4 of chapter 18, it says Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places. He shattered the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made. Think about it. That's from the book of Numbers. They still got the bronze snake that saved them, but now they're worshiping it. What was A thing of salvation has now become a snare to sin. For the Israelites burned incense to it up to that time. He called it Nahushtan. So here you have the sin that is going on. Hezekiah comes on the scene. He's one of the eight good kings. At 25, he starts being king. He reigns for 29 years. He did what was right in the Lord according to 2 Kings 18.3. Hezekiah begins to turn Judah back to God. He's getting rid of these things that that should not be part of their life. He's getting rid of the, the idolatries that led Israel, the northern kingdom, to be destroyed. In 18, verse 5, it says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him before him or after him. So this is a high point. You've actually got a guy. He rules for 29 years. He's turning the people back to God. Judah might have hope. Or so we would think. But since we know the story, we know it doesn't work out like that. So for this time period, he's he's removing the idolatries. He's pushing the people back to God. But who's still on the scene? Assyria's on the scene. Assyria has come all that way from the east and has taken out Israel. Are they going to stop? No, they're not going to stop. They want the whole thing. They'll go all the way to Egypt. So who's next on the on the list well judah and a, a place called lahish is next on the list and so in second kings 18 6 through 8 it says he remained faithful to yahweh he did not turn from following him but he kept the commands the lord had commanded moses the lord was with him and wherever he went he prospered he rebelled against the king of assyria and did not serve him He was defeated. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its borders from Watchtower to fortified city. Now, what you have to understand here is that when it says that he rebelled, okay, and so at different time periods, Hezekiah actually made different decisions. As Assyria came in and with their with their soldiers was taking over all these lands, you get basically two choices. You either Surrender to them and they deport you, or you refuse and they lay siege to your city. Lay siege to your city means they surround the city, okay? Nobody goes in, nobody goes out until one of two things happens you starve or surrender. So, those are your choices. And so, Hezekiah has previously surrendered to Assyria and paid tribute money. So, you pay money. And they kind of leave you alone, all right? So that's another way they make money. However, when there's a change in a king, the, the vassals, the, the servant states, the slave states, okay, they decide to rebel. Now, if you can remember back from, from the map, okay, so Assyria is way over here on the east side. Israel is over here. Now, obviously, they got soldiers scattered around, uh, you know, to keep the rebellions down. But when one of the kings dies – Everyone says, okay, this is the time. We can rebel now because there's instability. They're going to have to put a new king in place. He won't know everything. So let's rebel now. So (coughs) Hezekiah does that as well. He's not the only one. Lots of them do it. And because lots of them are doing it, it's going to take a long time to put all the rebellions down. And so you're hoping that you'll get up enough power that you won't have to resubmit again. Now (coughs) – Israel was, was captured after a three-year siege, which means that Israel fell in Hezekiah's sixth year of being a king. So Hezekiah knows what's going on. Okay, He, he watched, so to speak, the north get taken and fall. Assyria has no intention of stopping, and so they're, they're moving on down. And, and uh, Hezekiah has to decide, who am I going to rely on to help me in this mess? I could go to Egypt over on the west. I could try to find somebody on, on the far east that uh, is trying to take out uh, Assyria, for instance. Um, Babylon doesn't want Assyria to be in charge. Babylon wants to be in charge. So you can hedge your bets, and you see this all through world history. You pick one, and then they go against each other after they've you know, made their alliances, etc. So in reality, Hezekiah goes back and forth, okay? And so at times, he pays the tribute money. You can read that in 2 Kings 18, 15-19. to 19. Um, In slavery to Assyria, at other times, he doesn't. Now, as he has rebelled now, so Assyria is moving down, all right? And so this next picture is of Lachish, all right? It's just a big hill, all right? That's what it is. It's 30 miles away from um, Jerusalem, 30 miles. That's not very far. So Assyria is now at this mound, okay, Lachish, and they're gonna they're going to take the mound, all right? So 30 miles away. The troops are there. They're fighting it out, all right? When this is done with, they're going to continue on to Judah. Now, Hezekiah is no dummy. He knows once this is taken, this is pretty much the last stand, and then they'll be at his front door. You and I don't understand this crisis. You would have to be in a position in America of being the president and having – the U.S. is is too big to, to really imagine this, okay? Maybe being a governor would be a better idea, except that it doesn't work with our, our current structure and setup. But if, if you were the, the governor, okay, or the mayor of Orlando, and Orlando itself was surrounded, okay, that's what we're talking about. Right? These weren't huge, massive cities. That's why the whole U.S. doesn't really work, the whole state doesn't even work, all right? So the, the city of Jerusalem, for instance, could, could fit on uh, you know a small, a small piece of property. So. Lachish is going to be taken by Assyria. And so as it's, as it's being taken, just, it's 30 acres. That's how, that's how big this is. So if, if you guys know, if those of you from, from Church of the Cross, that's like a 40-acre property. So this city is the size of that property, all right? And that's it. And so when it's taken, they're going to head exactly over on to, uh, to Judah. So this, this relief image here actually shows – Okay, the images of, of what took place, okay, this is what the Assyrians did, and others did it too. They, they would carve into their walls evidence of their conquests. All right? and so you see people bowing down to the kings, etc. And this is all evidence. You can go see this in the British Museum, or you can look it on the internet or in a book. Um, so what happens next is what you read in the Bible is the, the Rabshika, he's the servant commander, okay, on the field commander – of Assyria, he confronts Hezekiah, and Hezekiah has to choose. Right? All day and night, the previous few days, he was probably debating this, but now he's got to make a choice. The man's here with part of his army. The rest of the army will be coming shortly. They're only 30 miles away. What are you gonna do? And the Rabshika shows up, and look with me now at 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. It won't be on the screen. Says when King Hezekiah heard the report, he tore his clothes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the Lord's temple. And he sent Eliakim, who was in the charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. Then he said, "This is what Hezekiah says: Today is a day of distress, rebuke, and disgrace. For children have come to the point of birth, but there is no strength to deliver them." Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rebshika, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God and will rebuke him for the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the surviving remnant. So the servants of King Hezekiah went to Isaiah, who said to them, Tell your master this. The Lord says, Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard that the king of Assyria attendants have blasphemed me with. I am about to put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land for I will cause him to fall by the sword. So what happens here is that the threat is imminent. The threat is right there. But Hezekiah goes to the prophet. He goes to the temple. He goes to hear what God has to say about it. And God says, don't be afraid of him. Now listen, you've got to have trust if you're going to act on that. Don't be afraid of him. I know who these people are. I know what they do. we paid tribute money before because we didn't want to be killed by them. Israel in the north is gone because of them. Uh, Lachish, the city 30 miles from us, is gone because of them. And you're saying, don't worry about it. I'm just going to whisper something in his ear and cause him to turn back around. Now, we read this, and I don't know, it might sound like a fairy tale. Does God really do that? You can have the whole army surrounding your city. Pretend you're the mayor of Orlando. Right? Right? Pick whatever country you don't like for whatever reason. Their whole army is surrounding Orlando. And God's saying, oh, I'm just gonna whisper something in his ear and it's gonna make them go back. Like, wh- wh- what are you gonna whisper in his ear that's gonna make them turn around and go back? Well, it could be any number of things. Like, because is being attacked by Babylon or anything else. Oh, I gotta get back. We'll have to deal with them later. This is an act. Crisis of belief where you have to choose if you're going to trust God or not. The story continues on, and, and there, is a, there is an event that happens, and, and he does go back. But in 2 Kings 19, verses 15 to 19, this will be on the screen for you. It says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord, okay? Because what happens is there's is, is, is a back and forth of the historical aspect of what takes place. They do go back, and then then they're back, surrounding him again. And so Hezekiah prays before the Lord. He says, "Lord God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you're God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord. Here, open your eyes, Lord. To see, hear the words the Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire." For they were not gods, but made by human hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, please save us from his hand, so that, catch this, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Now, the Assyrians had taken all the other nations, the Assyrians had taken all the other, quote, gods. If you read the text, what they say to Hezekiah is they taunt him, and they mock him, and they say that your God is no different than any of the other gods. We took all of them, and we'll take him. Now, this is actually something that gets God to move. When you start to challenge and say that he's just like everybody else, he says, no, I'm not. That's part of what happened with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It was a demonstration of which God actually controls the rain. God stopped the rain for three and a half years, and at the prayer of Elijah, he brings the rain back. Baal don't control the rain. God controls the rain. It's the same thing he did to the the ten plagues in Egypt. That was to demonstrate to all the gods of Egypt that they're dead. They don't don't exist. They're not alive. But he's the true God. If you read the Exodus story, by the way, you will continue to see this phrase repeated. That all the kingdoms of the earth, all the peoples will know that I am God. So Hezekiah praised this. And then in verse 35 he says that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians and when the people got up the next morning they were all dead bodies I want you to just imagine you, know, you, you can't quite grasp this you know, put yourself in a, on a piece of property this property pretend it's this here in the building next door we got walls, okay, to protect us. And all around, when you look outside, across the street, all everywhere, there's just soldiers everywhere in their tent. And Hezekiah goes to bed that night, and he gets up the next morning. They're dead. 185,000. Hezekiah didn't lift a finger. Not a shot was fired. Not a sword was pulled. Not even a dagger. Of faith, trusted God. This is the challenge that is all through the scriptures. Repeatedly, Israel chose not to trust God. Repeatedly, in the south, Judah chose not to trust God. And here we actually have an example of how the man, Hezekiah, did choose to trust God. It's not going to stay like this, unfortunately. Actually, will see next week, Hezekiah's son Manasseh was bad. Hezekiah's daddy was bad. Hezekiah was good. He's the man in the middle. but he, he reigned for 29 years, but his son Manasseh will reign for, if I'm not mistaken, 55 years. And he's the worst king Israel in the south Judah will ever have. And the kingdom will be destroyed sometime thereafter. But I want to talk with you about one more thing this morning. The seven uh, realities of experiencing God from Henry Blackaby as it relates to the crisis of faith or belief that Hezekiah went through Okay, on the table are several pieces of paper one was a notes page that you could have used uh, the other is this, this handout here on these seven realities and then the third paper was the timeline of the story so it, take, take all of these the timeline, make sure you grab one, there's plenty Okay, put it in your Bible. Put it in your book. Take it home. All right. It helps you understand the Bible story. But right now, I, I want you to look at the seven realities of experiencing God here by Henry Blackaby. All right? It's got this diagram at the top. It has God in the little bubble there, cloud. Now, the Bible stories are true. They really happen, All right. But you need to appropriate them. You need to live it in your own life and understand what's going on and see how you apply that to your own life. Hezekiah had a crisis in his life. You have crises in your life. They're not as big maybe as his. Maybe they're bigger depending on what's going on. All right? You don't have 185,000 soldiers sitting outside your home, all right? and I hope you never have the SWAT team sitting out there. All right? But you do have crisis events in your life. If you notice step number five on that diagram, it says the crisis of belief. That's where Hezekiah was. And maybe that's where you're at. You don't know what you believe. You don't know what to do. You don't know if you should trust God or trust something else. Let's take a quick walk through these seven realities of experiencing God. Reality number one says God is always at work around you. The first thing you need to realize is that before you existed, God was there and he was doing something. All right? They didn't start with you. That's not going to end with you. If Jesus don't come back first, after you die, God will still be doing something, with or without you. Same happened with Hezekiah, Abraham, David, etc. Before Hezekiah was born, God was already doing a work. He made promises to Abraham, to Noah, to um, Adam first, and then Noah, and then Abraham, and then David. All these promises. God was already working before Hezekiah came on the scene. And he was working after Hezekiah came on the scene, or we wouldn't be here. The second one is, God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. At some point, Hezekiah had to make a decision to allow God to be part of his life. And so do you. At some point, you've got to decide to let God in or or not let him in. It's your choice at some point. God's desire. He's already working. He wants to be part of your life. You choose. Let him in or don't. Reality three, God invites you to become involved with him in the work. Once you let him in, now he's saying, "I got something for you to do." God had worked in Hezekiah's life to position him and to put him in a place of leadership to serve as his ambassador and representative. Others have been given the same choice. He had a choice, just like the kings before him. He could represent God or not represent God. The Scriptures tell us in Corinthians that as New, Christ- New Testament believers, as Christians, that we are called to be ambassadors of God. That your job is to ambassador. Ambassadate? Is that a word? Your job is to be an ambassador, to represent God. Okay, You are his representative on earth to represent him and to reconcile people to him. That's your job. Accept it or reject it, but that's your job. Reality four, God speaks by the Holy Spirit through the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church to reveal himself, his purposes, and his ways. Hezekiah has to decide. Is he going to allow God to be his king or try to be his own king? Now keep in mind, he is a king of Judah, but he's not the king, he's just a king. God speaks through the revelation, the the word, he had the word. He had the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The king was, was commanded actually to copy his own copy of the Torah and to meditate on it day and night. He had the prophets, he had Isaiah there to tell him what God says. You and I have the Bible, we have each other. We have prayer. If you're a born-again believer, you have the Holy Spirit. We are not without resources. We are not without the revelation of God. God still speaks today. Reality number five, God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith in action. Hezekiah was in a major crisis and had to decide to trust God or not. When God tells you to do something, that's a crisis of belief. He says, go tell that person about me. That's a crisis of belief. Do you know what's in that person's mind and heart right now no you have no idea but god does so maybe he's prepared that person for something and now he's telling you go deliver a message you don't do it it's missed opportunity you may never know the outcome or the results or the lost blessings in your life because you disobeyed god reality six you must make major adjustments in your life to join god and what he's doing Hezekiah had to choose to stop paying the tribute money, face the enemy, not be afraid, not just for, for himself, but for the whole kingdom. By not paying the tribute money, what that means is soldiers are knocking on your door. By not paying the tribute money and saying, I'm going to trust God, I'm not going to make Assyria my ally, I'm going to make God my ally. The consequence of that decision is 185,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Yeah, that went real well. Thanks for trusting God, right? Right? Well, it turned out okay, actually, but it didn't look like it at first. He had to carry through the whole way through. Major adjustments. If you're going to follow God, you've got to make adjustments. you got to make adjustments on how you spend your time. you got to make adjustments on where you spend your time. You can't live your life the same way anymore. You've got to make adjustments. That's how I ended up in Orlando. I didn't know anything about Orlando. Well, i have been here one time to SeaWorld when I was a teenager, but that's it, Okay. I don't know anything else about Orlando. You make adjustments as God directs in your life, as you respond positively to the crisis of belief as he's working in your life. Reality number seven, you come to know God by experience as you obey him, and he accomplishes his work through you. As Hezekiah obeyed God, he saw God save them from the enemy. He never would have seen that happen if he hadn't trust God. Now, seeing is not believing, but seeing is something. If Hezekiah hadn't decided to make God his ally instead of Assyria his ally, he never would have seen the miracle of 185,000 soldiers that died in night. Think about the the 10 plagues. Think about the Exodus event, the Red Sea party, all of these different events. They would not have been witnessed unless people had obeyed God. Sometimes I wonder many things I have missed out on because I have not obeyed God. You're not going to see God work if you're not living in faith. No, you can't be stupid. You don't go jump off a building. That's testing God. Read Luke 4 and Matthew 4. But you do have to put yourself in a place where God can do the work. And that means it's a faith place. If, If what you're doing in life right now, you can do all of it by yourself, then you're not where God wants you to be. Where God wants you to be is in a place where he's got to do it, where he's got to come through. So we're getting ready to open this bookstore. I can't make that successful. I can work my butt off. I can build relationships and network and do all these things. I cannot make it successful. God will have to do that. Put yourself... So we've talked about Israel. We've talked about Isaiah and Hezekiah and what God was doing there. And lastly, just very quickly, I want to mention independence. You could try to go it alone. You could try to go it by yourself. But it's not going to work. and It's not going to last long. And you're deceiving yourself. Because nobody gets where they are or where they want to be by themselves. Everyone has help from someone else. So if you pretend like you got there by yourself, you're deceived and arrogant. You didn't. You can ignore or refuse to acknowledge that that help, but you can um but then you're at the first point in which Israel failed in gratitude. Catch that. When you don't acknowledge the help that got you where you are, that's ingratitude. That's the first sin we talked about that led to Israel being taken over and captured by the Assyrians, ingratitude. That's the sin that comes up in the book of Numbers, ingratitude. That's the sin that comes up in the book of Hebrews, referencing the book of Numbers and God's people in the wilderness, in gratitude. When Assyria came and captured Israel, and then came to Judah, and they boasted that no God could stand in their way, that's like the boast that Nebuchadnezzar makes in Daniel chapter 4 when he's on top of his palace, and he says, Look at what I have built. And God immediately says, Boom. You didn't build jack. I gave it all to you, and now I'll humble you for seven years, and then I'll give it back to you when you acknowledge who I am. That's what we're talking about. So independence really isn't going to work, all right? The only question really is who's going to be your ally, something or someone in the culture or Christ? That's your choice. And so I end this morning with the question that we started with really, who's your ally? which is simply another way of saying where do you put your trust. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in, in gratefulness that you reveal yourself to us and we come and acknowledge that you are God and you alone are God and we cannot do anything by ourselves. Even the ability to breathe and talk and walk is a gift from you. A gift that we take for granted most of the time. Gift that we don't thank you for most of the time, but a gift from you nevertheless. Forgive us for our ingratitude. Help us to be more grateful and thankful. God, I pray this morning for each person in this room that that we, as we evaluate our own lives and ask who's our ally, who are we trusting in, who who are we aligning ourselves with to try to get us through this life? Is it you or is it someone else? We're trying to get the right connection, we're trying to get the, the right reference, we're trying to you know, get uh, the the right person so that we can be in the right place. Or trust you and you can make those things happen. God, I pray for anyone here this morning that might not know you as Savior, that today might be the day that they they realize their need and cry out to you in just a simple fashion. They can cry out to you and and just say, God, I realize I I need you. I'm a sinner. I I can't do this by myself. I've been trying to go it alone and it doesn't work. I realize you're the creator and I need your help. I also realize that uh, you sent Jesus to die for my sins. My sins, that separate me from you. Forgive me for my sins. Come into my life and my Lord, be my savior. Take away my sins and show me how to live. Let me have the Holy Spirit to give me the power I need to say no to sin and to say yes to you. Make me your child today and I'll follow you and do whatever you ask me to do. If you're here today and you, you pray that, God will answer that prayer. He'll come in. He'll be your Lord. He'll be your Savior. He'll give you a fresh start, new life. Just stay devoted. Stay committed. Christian, let's not wander. Let's make our priorities the way they should be. When we're in a crisis of belief or faith, let's put God first. Let's make living for the kingdom and, and being part of the church and being a light for the world a priority more important than our personal ambitions and jobs and whatever else. Father, we love you.